Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. So today I'm with Michael Seidlinger, um, who is a Filipino-American author of uh, something like nine books, including My Pet Serial Killer, Dreams of Being, The Fun We've Had, I love that title, um, and um, many other books. He's written for, among others, BuzzFeed, Thrillist, and Publishers Weekly, and has led workshops at Catapult, Kettle Pond Writers Conference, and Sarah Lawrence. He's a co-founder and member of the arts collective, The Accomplices, and founder of the Indie Press, Civil Coping Mechanisms. He teaches at Portland State University and somehow manages to also live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, his most recent book that we'll talk about um, and which I think is very germane to this podcast is called Runaways, A Writer's Dilemma. It's out now from Future Tense Books. Um, there is a link to the um, ordering page in the description of this podcast. Michael, thanks a lot for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so I actually, uh, I teased this, uh, you have literary and uh, uh, teaching gigs in Oregon, and yet mm. you claim Brooklyn, New York is home. How, did, how does that work? So basically what happened was um, I, I took the role of being the professor for a particular kind of class. It's uh, it's actually more of a publishing class, uh, teaching students how to run a literary journal, in this case, Portland Review. Um, and it was supposed to be online anyway. They were pivoting it to being an online class. Uh, but during the pandemic, I actually did move to Portland, Oregon for a stint I, with the intention of actually staying there, but things just didn't work out. And I ended up uh, having a good opportunity to come back to Brooklyn. And that's what happened. So basically I had like in during 2020, I was in Portland for maybe like, I want to say like five or six months. <laughs> Growing up. Yeah. Did you want to be a writer? Did you have like role models or literary heroes that you wanted to emulate? So, um, actually I was the opposite. I, I kind of hated writing, not writing, reading, even like not even, I wasn't even thinking about being a writer. I was, uh, I was that kid in grade school and high school that when, you know, you had book reports and stuff like that required reading, I would try to find the clip notes or watch the film adaptation and just hope that I can wing it. And there's something about just like the idea of spending time staring at these pages and reading these words that I just like, was like, oh, you know, it's antiquated. It's, it's, everything that's been done narratively with that form has been done. I mean, that's why we have all this literary canon. That's, this is literally what was my uh, viewpoint as a kid. I think it was a mixture of uh, the fact that um, my dad was very much into books and I, I was that hard-headed kid, stubborn kid, rebellious kid that like anything my parents were doing was not cool. So um, kind of pushed back on all of that. So yeah, for the longest period of time, I, I did look, I was always looking for stories. I was always a creative person. Um, but I kind of looked to, at, at the future of storytelling in video games and film and whatnot, the very visual and it's sometimes interactive um, mediums. And it wasn't until undergrad, uh, I think I was a sophomore, that I came across a book called House of Leaves by, I always butcher his last name, I think it's Danielski, Mark Z. Danielski. It's the, the experimental novel that is about a house that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And it comes this this parable for for uh, love and, and going mad um but i randomly bought it on amazon back when they still had that 25 dollars super saver shipping thing where for you know dv various dvds various books um they qualified and if you had enough to hit that 25 dollar mark you got free shipping and i was collecting dvds at the time and you know really get it really deep into movies and, and video games and all that and it was just so happened that I was very close to hit that $25 point, but just couldn't make it work. And then there was this $10 book called House of Leaves. I was like, whatever. It's It's been recommended by people that have watched Videodrome and Blair Witch Project and stuff like that. It had like in the also bots. It was right there. I was like, you know what? Whatever. I'll just toss that in. It's only $9, $10. And then I kind of just left it sitting on some uh, table for a while until some random Friday night where I just didn't want to go out and like do the usual, you know, hanging with band members and hanging with people and just getting really drunk and all that. Um, I ended up picking up the book and it was just like zero to 60 after that. It blew me away. Then I looked for the same experience in other books, which led me to like Italo Cavino's if, On a Winter's Night a Traveler and, uh, you know, Chuck Palano kind of popped up as well. Uh, you went yeah, straight I, for the hard stuff. I, I Yeah, oh, transgressive, experimental. To this day, that's really what drives me like I, I love I'd, I'd pick up a Dennis Cooper book in a heartbeat 
um, the darkness of, of like horror and, and surrealism and, and speculative fiction that that's just totally my jam um but yeah it was it was once i found writing and reading i should say um it was quick uh i got really invested in it but prior to that it was very much a yeah that's a waste of time i don't want to read i don't want to waste my precious hours that I, you know free leisure hours when i'm not at school or doing all these other like taking care of responsibilities i want to use that towards like playing music playing video games experiencing film that like i thought was the the real next frontier for narrative but <laughs> we realized later you know i realized that uh, it all kind of originates with like the long form rate like writer like writers are doing all kinds of crazy stuff on the page to this day we're always finding new ways to tell stories yeah um I'm curious because I mean one of the one of the things I do want to talk to you about is sort of the the business side of 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 of, of publishing and I mean I might as well just jump right in I mean yeah do you do you find it to be an intelligently run industry because I sure don't <laughs> um, there are intelligent people in it oh yeah for sure but yeah well let's just this is just about traditional publishing. Um, it's just like it's a it's an industry that is slow to react and it's famously slow to react like remember when ebooks were like suddenly the next big thing and then you know people are like oh crap then death of the book death of the novel it's like the same same things they stumble upon the same things over and over again but at the end of the day it is an industry that's built on this antiquated model of um i mean the idea that you have to print like hundreds of galleys three to five maybe even six months in advance of a publication date that is arbitrary to begin with really the only thing that's keeping you from putting that book out is a print run um, and of course pre-publicity uh, all of this is built into this like antiquated model that that only has so many slots for authors to fill you know like it's a very prestige-based industry that's just built on all these different things that happen over the course of history um, that have, I think that's just kind of pushed the industry in a little bit of a proverbial sinkhole, like where we could totally be doing things differently, but it's just a matter of the, it in the machine. The system itself is already so well built on these antiquated principles that we continue to do and perpetuate the same thing. I mean, there has been a push for, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> there, do you find the small presses to be as guilty of that kind of, um, uh, you know, well, hidebound tradition is the bigger. Not as not as much, generally speaking. It's just a matter of like what's what happens with Indian small press is that they just don't have the same opportunities. They can plug as much as they can into that system, but at the end of the day, if they don't have good distribution um, and they don't do print runs and they don't push their books in that same traditional model of, you know, if this book's coming out in July then they need to be already put like kind of sending around and, and uh, doing the pre-publicity uh, and marketing like well into like, you know, March, like March, like somewhere around there in this like early spring. If they're not doing stuff like that, your book does end up falling flat no matter what. You can do a lot of grassroots and a lot of innovative uh, publicity, but this, at the end of the day, you don't have the, the books in the in with the right, you know, review outlets or venues and not in the trades like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and all that being reviewed, then there you're not going to be as visible. And it's going to be a lot harder, I should say. It's not impossible. We've seen breakout breakout hits. We see indies really killing it. They're they're doing they're doing great in terms of publishing what they want and you know innovative stuff. But at the end of the day, there is just the the lack of opportunities, kind of like a glass ceiling of sorts. Uh, for like, I, I mean, I feel it all the time as an indie author. And even when I have published with big indies that have the distribution and all that, they still like just generally are so they struggle more than say people working in working in and for the big five that just basically already have it all plotted out. Like they know what to do. Like the, 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 it's part of their job, you know. Like it's like what they think about and they get, actually get paid full time to do. So why do you think it is that the small the indies, a lot of them seem to be trying to mimic the big brothers, uh, you know, it just kind of not as well. I mean, the, the, at least the big five, right? They have a mechanism and they, 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 yeah. they, they, they can pump out volume and they, they, you right. know, they've got market power. Whereas the, you know, the Akashics of the world don't. I mean, you know, they have renown, and, you know, yeah. but, but, but they don't have the oomph. And, and so, but right. they're still kind of trying to replicate the same processes, it seems. I mean, they, I think it's just a matter of when you're working in an industry that has such a history uh, and a process, you end up naturally trying to match that, right? Like, oh, I never have a successful business. I need to 
know, adopt certain basic principles, basic steps, basic publishing uh, processes. And I mean, there are, there've been a lot of different presses, you know, past, present, and like, of course, in the future, there will be more as well that I've done like various different ways about doing it, just straight up direct to the consumer. They, there's a, there's a small press called amphetamine sulfate that does, refuses Amazon. Um, they don't put their am books on Amazon. They do Sure, I think they do, like they do print runs, not like POD. Um, they do print runs, and they just sell direct to bookstores and consumers. There are all kinds of innovative small presses and indie presses that do that, but they're always the outlier. You know, like they they have to they they take serious risks when they don't go that normal route. And uh, I think it's just a matter of this business doesn't this business is like it, it claims that it like it loves innovation, but in reality, it still wants its books the right the same way. You know, it still wants that same like give me the catalog that is pushed by push two books, send out the catalogs at Alan Edelweiss and like NetGalley, have the galleys there, you know, well in advance so that the media already knows what's coming out. Like they can just go to some list and be like, all right, that, that's also why we see so many anticipated lists just almost nine you know so much so much of it's just big five and and uh well adapted indies like akash you said and melville house and soho press because they're all they all they're, they're all plugged into that machine at this point they they have their seasons all, all booked out they they work in that traditional publishing model you're not going to see as many of the you know amphetamine sulfates uh 11 11 or uh, future tense like we're not going to see those kinds of books as much unless the person writing at for those venues, the people at those venues actively step out of their comfort zones and look and really look. And same thing with awards. Uh, the basic principle of how awards works is that you have to submit your books for consideration, which I always thought to be kind of, I, I get it because there's only so much time in the day and night to read as much as you can. But like, shouldn't the judges always be abreast of what's happening within the community and the industry anyway? But by by virtue of the way that traditionally works with a lot of awards, they you have to you have to the, the publisher has to send all these books out for consideration, and that's already a lot of money as it is. Because sometimes if it's even considered, they you have to send copies to every single judge and every single reader. And some awards they have like dozens of judges or readers or whatever. So that's like you know copies upon copies upon copies that a small press or an indie might not have the access to. So there's always there's all these little bits and pieces like that that just keep a, 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 a small slash indie press book from really getting out there. But we see it all the time where we see these breakouts that do. So, I mean, there's always a, I'm speaking in generalities, right? Like I'm not speaking right. like not in specifics, but yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Um, but I, you know, I've been around this stuff for like probably what, eight years or something like that now. And I, I mean, I haven't, I've seen changes, but ultimately I haven't, there hasn't been much of a change. Like we'll see, you'll see like every three to five years, new small presses coming out and like really kicking ass and they like flame out about, you know, around that five, it's always like about five years. I feel like if a small press really lasts until about a decade, they're usually going to be there for, for a while. Um, yeah. The $2 radios, they know uh, uh, Akashic and uh, yeah, Melville House and all that stuff. They've, they've been around. Uh, and then they, you'll start to see them kind of grow. Like if a press, a small press lasts that long, they do kind of grow into their own model, whether it be traditional, 100% traditional or like slightly hybrid, you know, you'll see them change, change and adapt and find their footing. But um, yeah, and here, this is a perfect like example of me digressing because now I'm just like kind of going on and on. But yes, yeah, it is. But yeah. that's the point. So, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, did, 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 did someone must have told you there's no money in this, right? I never went into this with money in, in mind. I, I I mean, I'm going to be straight up honest. At one point, I did get lost in the proverbial weeds with trying to get that big book deal. I, I was like, sometime in like 2016, 2017, I like chased this idea for a nonfiction book that involved a social media driven road trip. And I mean, I did the road trip. It was a month long and I could only go where social media told me to go. And I had to go cross country. Uh, from Brooklyn over to the West Coast, um, I, I was able to perform all that. And like, you know, it was really great to see people like really turn out and like help me. Uh, but it was the idea was to turn it into a book that examined social media. I mean, I'm glad it didn't actually work out because it would have been a book that would have been antiquated like two or three years out. It would have been a book that would probably on my bibliography. I'd be like, eh, it was a payday. You know, but 
the agent I had at the time, like kind of fumbled the sale. Like he, he sent it out to too many people too quickly, which is always a bad thing. It just, it creates a lack of demand. Uh, and it was sort of a lesson uh, for me where like the one time I was like, look, I'm going to try to make some money off of a book. Um, and so I wrote, I went into it with that mindset first. And of course it didn't work out. All the books that I write from Runaways to, to My Pet Serial Killer to Fun We've Had to all that, it's always been about just the challenge of writing it. Of, I, I enjoy the best part of, for me, the best part of this whole process is being lost in the book as I'm writing it, when I'm trying to, when I'm, when I'm discovering the world and its characters and the structure of the, the novel or whatever it is that I'm writing and, and finally seeing it come to form and come to fruition, that's like, that's the, that's the most, that's the best part. So like, I've always chased that anyway. Um, and it was just like, you know, we all have our lessons. We have our pitfalls. I, I had mine. It took me a while to get out of it, out of that rut, but I'm definitely out of it now. I just kind of got, I had to make peace with like why it is that I write anyway. And I write because I actually enjoy exploring those conceived worlds, uh, using metaphors, using characters to explore whatever it is that I'm exploring. Um, And I think that's what's also helped me continue throughout a industry and and a craft that has like very little money in it. It's because it's not about the money for me. It's about creativity. It's about being able to explore. So when I was in my 20s and, you know, the the debate that I had with writers or not the debate necessarily the discussions that we would have was along the lines of you know do you want to be a journalist where you're using your writing but it's not you know fiction and how is that going to affect your your writing or you know do you want to have a you know crappy job at the you know at the Kinko's um or at uh the, the coffee shop um that has like absolutely no intellectual demands on you um, or do you want the crappy day job that has some intellectual demands and kind of has a better payday you know what's your feeling about how do you manage I mean obviously you've got a bunch of interesting gigs um, uh, including the teaching gig but uh, you know what's your what's your approach yeah so before you know like in the before times before pandemic pre-pandemic and uh pre kind of self-reflecting on what I want out of this industry and this craft. Yeah. I worked in publishing, you know, I worked at Melville house. I worked at design books. I worked for electric literature and those were like the day jobs. Um, but it, what really happened pretty quickly in into that was that, you know, if you're working a job that's similar to also your passion, it does for me, at least it didn't really quite work after a while I started burning out and money wasn't really there anyway. Like you don't get paid a lot in publishing. It's enough maybe to pay the rent. And like, you know, you have to still penny pinch enough where you can't eat three meals a day. You know, it's like that bad. Um, so what happened was I basically had to walk away from something and it was like the universe telling me you either write if you're going, if you want to continue writing, you can't be working in publishing because it's literally destroying you mentally and, and physically too. I was getting sick a lot, you know, always having a cold, always like something, you know, migraines and just like the body falling apart. I always found it ironic that like a lot of people get these day jobs because they're like, oh, there's a cushion and a, a security of a, of a salary and also, you know, the, the benefits like health insurance and stuff like that. But I don't know a single person that has a nine to five that isn't like always in some way in a heightened form of stress that ca- inadvertently causes a lot of health issues. So yeah, they end up using their health insurance, but it's because they're working a job that is so toxic for them. Anyway, so how do I make it work? I basically I freelance full time. I, you know, write on the side, write my books and stuff like that on the side. But then, you know, I take up the, um, I take up whatever freelance I can get. I have uh, certain um, venues that are like clients that are kind of like mainstays that help uh, a lot too. But yeah, it's always, it's, it's truly like me. I basically had to, to face the unknown. I had to take the risk and be like, look, I'm going to invest in myself and I'm going to try to make a go of this. And so far, so good. You know, I have all my fingers crossed right now, like that the freelance thing continues to work. Um, it's been about a, two years now, I think almost two years. And I'm not, I don't get sick as much, you know, I I'm, I'm mentally clear. I, I found, I found my footing basically. And I feel like the answer, the, the answer to the question you asked, it's like, how, how do, how does one make it work? Well, you kind of have to figure it out for yourself. Everyone's different. Some people actually thrive in, in uh, working a menial job that has like no intellectual or like, no, like real, like nothing that taxes the mind. Um, uh, some people, end up as a professor and it kind of helps them and helps their creativity as well to work with, you know, emerging authors and their students and stuff like that. Um, 
some people are like me that scum it out and like do freelance and all this other stuff. It's just about finding something that is less toxic. I, it's hard to find something, some day gig that isn't going to negatively affect you somehow. Uh, for me, at least, it, it just I couldn't do the nine to fives. I, I did my fair share of it in publishing mostly. Uh, but, you know, I didn't I also did like random stuff like I used to do like I used to do like day labor stuff way back when when I was like in my early like early 20s i'll just go on craigslist and whatever was available i'll do construction i'll do anything i would even i would you know i'd lie through my teeth saying yeah i know how to like nail a board and uh, nail boards to like a wall or whatever really i did and i was just like i was that's how hungry and and starving i was i was just like yo uh i'll just learn from the people that are, do, are doing it with me and like you know it worked out it was scary uh <laughs> but you know like anyway this is my way of saying like you just got to find something that can like doesn't kill you so that you can still have the time and the mental energy to sit in front of that blank page and work on it. So um, getting to your writing, do you consider yourself a genre writer, a writer of literary fiction? Or, and if either yeah. of those, do you find that that's kind of limiting commercially? Do you, oh, yeah. do you care? Or does it help to have a genre? Is it, is it <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's doing other things. It's totally limiting to categorize, but we, we as people, as human beings, we can't help but categorize because that's how we figure things out, right? Like we, that's, we put things in boxes to examine and understand. Um, I would say I'm more literary leaning, but uh, I think my influences where I wear, wear them on my sleeve in the sense that like, I like the dark stuff. So I like you know, speculative fiction, like literary horror. And that's where I've normally operated in the last couple of books, like Runaways and the one before it dreams of being, it was, it was straight up literary fiction. And I think it retro, and I look back in hindsight, I'm like, those two books were written as my way of understanding what it is I want out of this craft, right. Out of, out of writing. So I needed it. It was almost like a cleansation, like a meditation dreams of being and runaways. They both are, are very focused on what it means to create in a, passionless world uh the, uh the the inherent selfishness of it where you you know force this time that is yours and yours alone and just like why one even creates and writes um but normally i'm i'm invested in exploring you know the the various tropes and why we use them and continue to use them the monsters that are very more psychological in nature um my pet serial killer was about um someone who's sexually attracted to serial killers she likes to seduce and dominate them and basically turn them into her pets basically you know focusing on their careers and and informing their modus operandi their mo and uh taking the do normally dominant role of the killer into a subservient role so i was exploring sex and violence in that um, a book that's coming out in August next year via Clash Books, it's called Anybody Home. It's uh, an exploration of home invasions, which I argue as being like, for me, at least the only real trope that still scares me, the idea that someone breaks in and, and undo, like, destroys the sanctity and the sanctuary that is our houses, our homes. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's about a it's written from the perspective of a seasoned invader, someone who's done this numerous times. Uh, and he and he's he or they, you, it's kind of up in the air. Uh, you, there's no gender assigned. Uh, the, the invader teaches the reader who is a new invader how to systematically case, uh, explore, learn the routines of, of your victims and pull off a home invasion. So with that one, I'm exploring a couple of things, you know, not only the home invasion as a trope, but fear in general, like why, why does this cause that level of fear? And, and more so than that, the complicity of, of horror in general, like a lot of horror writers and directors and all that, we create the most disgusting things ever to explore this stuff. And it's kind of a matter of like, not saying, oh, I don't agree. And I think people should, should like lessen this, this gore and, the, and this insanity. No, I, if, if anything, maybe even like dial it in more, but understand like what, where, are we complicit here like there are literal people being created for this story and then killed off in menacing manner and for our entertainment for like why are we feeling this way so with anybody home it's sort of an example of yeah what i'm always looking at looking for as a reader but also as a writer um you know in fact uh, uh looking at runaways uh, which is the, the the full title runaways a writer's dilemma um and to me it, it concerns writers battling despair and ego and their own creative yeah. process. 
Um, why did you write that? And what do you think is the biggest source of the anxiety you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so the short version of the story is, all right. So I'm very one note on Twitter these days. Like I literally just do the same kinds of tweets. I call them writing despair tweets where no matter what it is that I'm tweeting about, it's always, a, it, it's sort of a reflection of how I may be feeling at the time as a writer or have, have felt in recent times. Um, and what happened is I, I remember, I still don't to this day, I should probably know because I've told the story a couple of times now, but there was a tweet that I tweeted out and, you know, got like some retweets, whatever. Kevin Samsel, who a uh, writer and editor, uh, he also a bookseller uh, based out of Portland, Oregon. He's, he's, uh, he's, he, he's future tense books and has run that, run the press for since the nineties, I believe he saw one of the tweets and I think he like retweeted or whatever. And then someone within the comment thread of that, uh, was like, you should just compile a bunch of these and make it into a book. And I'm like, yeah, if someone, if someone wants to publish it, I'll totally do it. And then Kevin was like, actually, yeah. And then he, I think it was a DM or an email. We started talking about what that would be. So it was a prompt at the end of the day, runaway started out as a prompt. That was an extension of my writing spirit tweets. And, uh, but, but we want to do more than just like a tweet book. Like those, those things, those felt like so outlet. So 2013, you know, didn't feel like it would have any interest or staying power. Um, so we, he didn't really, he was just like, try to do some, something that involves more of a, a timeless parable narrative kind of thing. And yeah, I, it, I started writing it right around the time things like started closing down during the pandemic, like the week of the lockdown. Um, and, uh, I dove into it and explored what writing despair is. And that's where I got the whole, a writer, you know, main character, which, uh, at first, like Kevin and I weren't quite sure if it would work, but I kind of just went with it and, and tried to create a, a relatable narrative that explores what despair is for us and how mostly, although there will be reprieves, we are always going to feel, you know, the imposter syndrome. We're always going to worry about not doing enough. We're always going to be jealous in some way, shape or form uh, of that person that we know that gets the big, huge book deal that we didn't get, you know, like all these times, kinds of modern, very modern, very, very, but very commonplace, uh, ingredients of that writing despair that we all feel the longer we're in this. Um, two observations. Yeah. One of them is, um, despite yourself, maybe, I mean, I find it to be a, a really hopeful book. I mean, maybe I completely misread it and I'm an idiot, but, um, there's a no, lot of, no, it was try, I was trying to make it hopeful at the end of the day. <laughs> well, you know, and, 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 and then um, yep. the social media is obviously um, uh, one of the, I wouldn't, well, maybe not one of the characters in the book, but it's certainly an important part of the book. Um, uh, and, um, you know, you, you just were talking about, you know, being on, on Twitter. And one of the things that um, I've noticed over the you know, the last couple of years is the extent to which the industry now expects writers yep. to be active on social media to you know have a large following, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of writers find that to be soul sucking, um, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. put it mildly. Mm -hmm. um, what's your experience? I mean, obviously you're 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 active in social media. Um, how do you prevent it? Or do you prevent it from being soul-sucking? <laughs> oh, it's soul-sucking. Um, I think the longer I'm in it, the, the more vulnerable I am to it. I used to love it. Like, again, going back to the whole, like, chasing that big book deal thing and the road trip that I mentioned earlier, uh, around that time, I was super online. I, I basically, a lot of what's in Runaways is uh, also, you know, it's, all, it's coming from real experience. Um I used to basically only do things if I could figure out a way to document them online. It was almost like you, you couldn't just do something for yourself or for like the, the people that you're hanging out with. It has to be like, gotta take the selfie with the person. Gotta, gotta come up with a cool, clever tweet about like dinner tonight. You know, like it, it was like everything that was like an extension of social media and broadcasting yourself and quote unquote documenting yourself. But like who, we're not documentarians. You know, we're not, we're not trying to create document, like the whole documents of our lives. I mean, we shouldn't be, I don't think that's healthy. So I, I kind of did bottom out around that same time I, I, when the book didn't work out. And I realized that I kind of like just chased something for the sake of money, uh, had a little crisis of creative faith, you know, uh, nowadays the one note is, is, is deliberate. Like I do the writing and despair tweets because it helps me and it has actually 
helped people. Like people have come at, come at me saying, Hey, look, you know, when I see those things, it makes me feel less alone. I'm like, well, great. Cause that's what I, that's all I want to do with social media. You know, I, I'm very deliberate now with social media because I know it can suck a lot out of me. And even just the minimal amounts that I'm on there anyway, it does feel pretty gross. And, and then I just like th thinking about being that visible again, the way I was just also feels gross. Um, I don't think most writers are introverts. You know, most of us, like we live in our heads a lot. And so social media feels also weird to have to be a, an, an important part of, of the career. I think it's just a matter of how uh, things have changed. It used to be like back in the day when social, when, when, when the internet didn't exist, writers went and read places, right? Tried to like create, try to be part of the local community. And, but the point is community has always been a part of the writing thing in some way, shape or form. Like even the most famous writers you see, you hear about their correspondence together, you know, like the, yeah. there are all these letters from X to Y. This person read, wrote so much to this person. It's the same thing now. It's just now we're on social media. It's just because so, the, the inherent nature of social media demanding so much and it's constant, it's 24 seven. Uh, we just, we all have our own abilities or deficiencies uh, of trying to, to manage it. Um, well, I'm, glad I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up community because I was going to ask you um, about I mean, you, you, you are the co-founder of um, an arts collective, um, yep. The Accomplices. Um, what, so how, how do you see the role of community? It's very important. Um, I think in the last five years or so, at least on my end, I've seen what used to be what felt like um, everyone online that was doing literary stuff was sort of like very welcoming to each other. People did kind of get siloed, so to speak, like people started to find their own places and their own like groups of people and people kind of operate that way. But in general, I think uh, community is necessary because like this is kind of a, it can get lonely being a writer doing the writing thing. And then at the end of the day, it, it feels better sometimes to like be able to vent to others that also feel the same way. Um, and locality kind of changes since the internet has become such a mainstay, you know, the effect of social media. So we can kind of be like in each other's literary communities, even though like someone's in another country or someone's in the Midwest or on the opposite coast in this case. Like, you know, I know a lot of people that are on the West Coast, even though I've been like pretty much living in the East Coast my entire life. Um, we need we need some kind of social elements, even if we're not social, you know, even if, even if we, we, we pride ourselves in being, you know, like very like kind of to ourselves as, you know, writers or creatives. And that's fine, but at some way, shape, at some point you're gonna like, you're gonna need some, some vein, you know, to tap into. You're, you're gonna need people to, to read your work or share your work with, or, or just like, at least just, you know, have camaraderie. I mean, <clears throat> it seems to me that it's very rare that you have a writer who is sui generis and has, you know, no relationship to the zeitgeist, the other artistic product coming out in the same right. time period and from the same culture, whether it's, you know, so uh, it could be geographically, disparate but i mean you know henry james was you know both american and british but he was you know part of that sort of boston slash london arts collective in a weird way right um yeah. and you had as you noting you know writers writing to each other and i think that it wasn't just exchanging niceties right but sharing manuscripts and criticism and yeah. ultimately forging together what they saw as you know the right kind of work to be doing today whatever today happened today yeah yeah absolutely like i mean you see it across all creative mediums i mean the more famous you know historical examples on the music side of course like the hardcore punk right that happened all across the the like set late 70s early 80s with like bands like black flag and all that like creating this this really this truly diy music community that involved a lot of people playing basement shows and, and these really like captivating and fascinating uh, cultural moments, right? But they were doing it because they were creating music that was so like anti-establishment. They're just, they're doing what they really thought was true and felt and felt true about. They weren't chasing the money because there was no money in it. They were chasing the experience and they happened to all share that experience and created a community out of it. Same thing happened, you know, of course we always talk about the beats, you know, it was very much like a sausage fest and for a lot of it, a lot of just dudes, you know, being dudes, but 
um, they did similar things where they started creating like reading events and stuff like that and, and bonding based on realizing that, hey, no one's publishing our shit. Like no one wants to publish our shit. It was only until, it was only when they were like already, things were already happening. Kerouac did his thing, you know, obviously popped with uh, On the Road and then Burroughs with, was it Naked Lunch that made it work? I don't remember. But um, they were not marketable until they were marketable. But, right. But the community element that they were fostering kind of helped them outlast the the anonymity or like the lack of attention and also just they they had fun doing it too like they were supporting each other and that's actually a very important thing to have support from others yeah no i agree i also wonder the extent i mean you know we can we can talk about objectivity and subjectivity and and standards and all that stuff and you know one of the reasons that that people want to be published and, and not just self-publish other than the distribution and things like that is, you know, that um, someone else subjectively decides that they want to publish your work because it's, it's, you know, it's good enough, right? Um, right. That's an important thing. Um, but when you're doing things that are not in the mainstream or that do not have direct commercial appeal or obvious direct commercial appeal, um, having a community of like-minded people to support your work and, you know, perhaps publish it in a different, you know, um, uh, in a different scale, right? As we talked about earlier, yeah. Nevertheless, it's it's the same thing. You 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 need, I think, that um, people like, uh, you know, Dzank or uh, the others. Um, yeah, yeah. To um, it's it's pretty wild to think. Uh, I mean, this is again another slight digre- digression from the topic, but hey, that's that's what this is about. Um, People do a lot for that little colophon, right? Like on the spine. And, and what, what's funny to me is that like the average reader, like the person that walks into a bookstore that isn't as tapped into like this industry, maybe hears about a book on a podcast or or just go, it tends to just go to the library and check out books, right? And discover it that way. They're not usually looking at the colophon and being like, oh, I'm going to pick up this book because it was it was published by um, FSG Originals. Yeah, I, I, I read everything FSG. <laughs> like most are not thinking that way. We do because we're writers. Uh, and we see like a lot of cachet to like the vintage or the Pantheon colophon on the, the spine. You're like, oh, that means business. Because again, it's all about the prestige of the previous, everyone that's been published by that that imprint or that publisher, it's all reflection, all reflected on that brand, that literary brand that is the little colophon on the on the spine. But like very few readers, I, I feel like there's most readers don't think that way. They they look at the cover, they they read the back thing. Even the blurbs oftentimes don't really resonate as much with readers. Like we care <laughs> and the marketing and the publicity and the bookstores and all that stuff. We they do care about the name on the those the, the blurbs, all the different blurbs and all the different names that are attached to essentially vouching for that book but it's all sort of it's funny to see it from a distance because that's all sort of part of that our, our system our, our the process of publishing and and how writers think and get caught up in it but at the end of the day like the book still has to be good and it has to be attractive and interesting to that reader that doesn't care about fsg doesn't care about pulitzer prize winning blurb from whatever you know like they they want to actually like they want to for them to pick up the book and actually continue reading it it has they have to find something else that resonates in it which is the actual writing itself yeah i I mean it's funny that you should say that because i think the same is true in journalism where as journalists we all know each other's bylines but you know um ask somebody (laughs) you know someone talks about an article they read in the paper when you ask them who wrote it they have no idea no it's like it's the first thing on the very top of the page but they no don't see it. it's, yeah it's, they only see the headline yeah they care about the story at the end of the day that's what we, we all care about like the experience of reading what is that whatever it is that we're reading uh it, it's not i'm not i'm not like trying to say it doesn't matter to me to see how how myopic or how like in a bubble we can be with all this you know uh for every uh, I'm gonna always space out like actual concrete examples when I'm talking about stuff like this, but like so big bestseller, whatever you know, that, that's like on the top of the New York Times bestseller list that's everywhere versus a book that breaks out from a small press. At the end of the day, the reader that's looking at both of those will pick up the book that resonates more with them, content-wise. You know, like they're not gonna most of the writers that they're not gonna they're not gonna 
not everyone's a Stephen King and, you know, not everyone should be like, but not very few readers are going to be like looking at your name and specifically buying it for that, at least initially, you know, they're going to look at it and, and give a chance and give a chance to that book based on the actual subject material itself and how it resonates with them. And at the end of the day, that's also kind of encouraging because it, it shows that you can still reach an audience and yeah, you can grow your name. I mean, we, we start to build a readership, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I only mean in the sense that there's very few writers that will, you, you can easily, that people, anyone will just pick up the book because they know the name already. You know, like there, there's the, there's like that upper echelon of like super marketable people, Clancy, Patterson, um, Rowling, I guess. I don't know. But there's, a, <clears throat> there's sort of um, an, a, another strata, um, you know, Richard Powers, or mm-hmm. uh, Colson Whitehead. Oh yeah, um, totally. Who, you know, or, or Dave Eggers. Um, Eggers, yeah. Um, who, who are recognizable names um, who write, you know, in, in enviably quality work, right? Um, yeah, I think it's also all the awards and, and like critical acclaim and all that. And they, they, they there's like this element, of, like at least with Colson Whitehead, like amazing work, very different almost every book seems to be him like kind of I mean there there's a there's like a, a thread between a through line through all of them because you know his interests and what he's interested in writing about but I mean he went for he has like a zombie novel you know like a pandemic zone one's a pandemic novel and then he's got of course the uh underground railroad and uh they're all like interestingly done but there's also something very Colson Whitehead about them and by virtue of sales but also a lot of awards and whatnot and really just being there and pumping out the work he did kind of kind of poke out as becoming like an eminent name that uh, yeah, yeah readers will know and recognize but uh, so you walk into a bookstore to bring that back right yeah. um and it's funny because i just walked into a bookstore a couple of weeks ago um and uh where i live there's an actual independent bookstore um and but it's the same uh most of the same familiar names on the tables um, as you would find in a Barnes and Noble, um, because I mean they have you know I, I don't blame them they're they're they're, they're trying to sell. Um, yeah, very few bookstores are like City Lights where um, you know they've got a bunch of tables that have nothing but independent publishers and authors yeah, you've never heard of. And stuff, yeah, and where you kind of have to you know leaf through stuff um, to kind of figure out what it is you want, and you know as, as we kind of work our way through the pen you know. The next variant and the next variant and the variant after yeah. that yep. and we start like you know venturing into stores with our masks on and our vaccine cards um you know do you see um a future where there's more bookstores or do you see it being increasingly something that happens online i think i think it's gonna be a lot of online but i think um i think the the days are numbered for like big huge bookstores like the Barnes and Nobles I think I almost feel like Barnes and Noble is just being propped up by the industry to keep it alive because we can't not have a huge chain you know like there's only like one chain left outside of gross ass Amazon you know bookstores and stuff like that which, which oh talk about surreal walking into an Amazon bookstore like they they only they only stock it with like five stars or whatever like it's it's crazy like they mark they, they categorize based on their reviews and it's, it's wild but um I think it's gonna be like we're, we, we are already there, you know, like bookshop and, and different sources of buying things online. We're, we're already where we are. I think there's going to be always an, an interesting array of indies, indie independent bookstores. I mean, there's this uh, bookstore that opened during, the, there's a couple of bookstores that o- opened during the pandemic just off the top of my head, like one in my neighborhood in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, like two blocks up. Um, they like opened like a month ago. Um, and then there's this sweet pickle books in the, I think lower, I forget somewhere in Manhattan on the, in the lower numbers. Um, and they opened also during the pandemic and it's like, it's an interesting format where they have a lot, they tend to lean a little bit more towards used books, but I think they also have some new stuff too, but they sell pickles. Like they have, they make their own pickles and stuff like that. Hence sweet pickle books. I feel like that's going to continue to happen. We're going to have indies that really accentuate their own, like not brand, but their own like interests. Right. Right. There are a lot of the, the whole popularization of indies that also have like liquor licenses and beer licenses, something like that, 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 that's going to continue to be a thing. I think it's like, again, it goes back to community when we, we are all comfortable again, hopefully sooner rather than later to venture more into that in-person stuff. We're going to want these kinds of bookstores uh, 
to, to go and like see, enjoy a reading or like hang out and like have a drink and talk to similar minded people. Like that's never going to go away. But the F emphasis of books being pop, like but just being sold online. Yeah, that's that's the mainstay, I think. And we've, we're there already. It's, it's not like a new thing. I think just the pandemic reminded us again of, of just how decentralized book sales are now. Like it's, it's, uh, yeah, we, we, we love the convenience of being able to just go and buy like a bunch of books. Uh, it makes sense. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to, yeah, we want to walk into that bookstore and look at those, those aisles and, and the tables and stuff like that. I mean, the thing about <clears throat> uh, online bookstores is, I mean, all right, so there was Amazon. Um, yeah. And then as an alternative, I don't know if you remember this, um, but there was um, Powell books. Um, oh, Powell, yeah. Uh, I mean, which, which, you know, was the only real alternative in terms of um, scale. Like if you, yeah. if you wanted some obscure book, you could find it on Amazon. It, you know, if, if you went to some other indie store, you probably wouldn't find it. Um, so Powell's was great and um, Able Books was great and there oh, yeah. a, a few um, alternatives, um, but it almost seemed like most of the bookstores, online bookstores, um, were sort of the e-commerce variant of a, an established, you know, physical bookstore. Um, yep. And I'm wondering whether there's going to be a greater proliferation of just pure play virtual booksellers. And if so, are they going to be generalist? How are they going to stock themselves? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or are they going to be more like what you're saying, more specialized by interest or, uh, you know, category. I think, I think um, we're going to like bookshop.org is totally here to stay. And they have that, well, one of the best features of that website is the curate, curatorial aspect of it. People can create their own lists. Uh, booksellers can create their own like staff picks list and share it around. Um, I think largely we're going to see that kind of stuff. Like we're going to see like more so like you said, generalists, like, yeah, we're going to see the, the big, huge venue that sells a bunch of books. And um, then there will be kind of subsections of those, those uh, platforms where people are able to make book recommendations. I mean, I, if you ask me, like, ideally, I'd love to see like something that's not Goodreads, but utilizes the element of Goodreads uh -huh. where it's a social media element. Goodreads sucks, but um, like, it's just like it, it, it just I feel like it hasn't been updated in forever and it like just chugs as a website and like there's very little um I, I, people can you can put like one you can just start one starring all these different books like with nobody's business like there's like there's an element lacking there uh but ideally one would see like a a retailer that el uses elements of like a goodreads model then you know but also has the aggregate aggregation like aggregation of a uh, different possible places where you could buy the book or you could buy it from them directly like most uh, most books these days they uh aren't even generally stocked like there'll be print runs and warehouses and stuff like that but it's all just metadata sent and, and received uh via different um wh what do you call them like storefronts i guess you want to call it that it like it is all many other times they don't even they have to order the book once you want it ease of access there with that um because it's all just databases of isbns and 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 everything being scraped and added to these these pages that you know for each individual book so it's like we are getting closer and closer to the point where it's going to be less about where like which storefront but like the storefront that matters most to you and of course like amazon is the first to for all of us we all kind of boycott amazon but a lot of people still obviously go to amazon and buy their books and then you know i think it's like powell's is a good op uh good 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 option because they're just such a great indie force um there used to be what indie was it indie bound you can use indie bound to find local indies right um which is a i still think is a is, is viable like you know like to use um and then yeah bookshop bookshop's like the latest big kind of name to come up as an as an option for online purchases that aren't <laughs> isn't amazon right um, yeah i think it's i think we're already there i think it's going to be more so we're gonna we're gonna a lot of people will try i'm sure there'll be a lot of people like little online retailers that try to do cool things but they're probably going to have to do something like very original or different like that's specialized to their own like have a 
a lot of book clubs or have something that connects to the to the community or the the proverbial customers that are reading these books but do it in a way that's not just like everyone else like i think that's what's going to have to happen if you're going to want to like compete at all or like offer a storefront online so um, i have a couple of questions left to ask you um the questions i ask everybody Oh, awesome. What yep. is your what is your relationship to physical books? Do you dog ear them? Do you mark them up? Do you like the way they smell? What's your what's your deal with books? All right. So up until like a couple of years ago, I was the person that would laminate my, my, my paperbacks and and wrap my hardcovers in mylar and, and kind of like protect them. I'd hate I hated seeing the book cover like folded over and all that. And I would never write in them or never dog ear them. Not I would keep them pristine as much as possible. But like something happened at some point where I stopped doing that. And now I do I, I dog ear sometimes, but most of the time, I mean, I do write in my books and do all the things now. But um, yeah, my relationship with the book is I obviously prefer the physical book over the ebook. And um, I just know now that there's something to be said about seeing a book that's been read and, and kind of loved, right? Like enjoyed. So it's almost like adding your own personal historical touch to, to that to that book or that copy. So I, I've started to embrace that. I'm still working on it. I, I tend to be still that person that keeps each page pristine. And, you know, I don't, I, I hate getting like little like coffee marks or any kind of mark on the pages, but it, my, my current relationship with that is learning that a, a lived in book is good. And I'm trying to work on <laughs> enjoying that aspect. Yeah. Long gone are the days where every single one of my books is just like, almost like a library copy, you know, where like they all laminate and stuff like that. Yeah. It was too much, also too much work to maintain that. Um, Cause you have to like, you have to buy the materials, which aren't cheap. And then you, it's hard to like actually affix that stuff without making it look bad. You can usually like accidentally ruin a copy by like pasting the, the, the uh, laminate like on an angle or like messing it up. It happens all the time or getting bubbles, like the little bubbles underneath the uh, laminate. Oh, that was the worst. Like you, there's you, a psychic cost that must have been just absolutely atrocious oh yeah i used to do a thing where like i would wait until i have like 10 or or whatever that i want to do that and i'll just like fire up a movie or a show and start watching and like you know I'd do that while watching the movie but then you know it, it's something like a, a switch flicked on or off whatever i forget what direction uh, in my head but uh i was just like why am i doing this right and also like i just ran out of materials and i never bought any more i'm like nah i'm done <laughs> And my last question for you is, if you hadn't become a writer, what would have been your dream vocation? I mean, would you like to play center field for the Yankees, president of the United States, cellist at the New York Philharmonic? What, what would have been the, you know, your dream uh, thing? Yeah, I tried both of them and failed. So it'd be a toss up between a game developer or a musician. I tried both of them and I failed. So like, uh, it's not for lack of trying. Um, if I, if, yeah, if I had the opportunity, it would definitely be a creative medium. I would love to be like in a metal band, you know, screaming my brains out uh, on, behind the mic or yeah, working on some like really artistic indie game that is enjoyed by many, many gamers. That would be probably my ideal. So um, Michael, thanks so much. Michael is the author of Runaways, A Writer's Dilemma uh, out from Future Tense Books. Um, there are many other books that he has written and you will find again as i said earlier the link to those pages in the description of this podcast i can't thank you enough i found this super enjoyable and um i look forward to reading more of you yeah thanks so much for having me this is fun i'm michael hickens and you've been listening to but i digress a podcast about writing not writing and everything in between if you want to know more about me please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.